Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe and others. I'm Christopher and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 37, The Whelps of Calvin. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Before we begin today, I'd like to thank my Patreon House of Lords, which has been joined by a favourite of the King, Frederick, and Fernando, Viscount Campos. Like all of the patrons, they can listen to this and every other episode ad-free. Go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica to find out more. I'd also like to deeply thank Carla Fater for their incredibly kind and generous donation. Thank you so much, Carla. Last time, we saw the English Civil War become a war of three kingdoms, as armies from Scotland and Ireland entered the fray. The Irish troops were really nothing of the sort. They were mostly made up of English and Welsh soldiers, who had been sent over to Ireland before the Civil War erupted, and had been fighting the Irish rebels, now the Confederacy, ever since. Charles I's cessation of arms with that Confederacy freed up these men to come home and fight for the king but as we saw, their contribution to the royalist war effort wasn't great, and in some ways, the cessation was a net loss for Charles. Not only did the reinforcements dry up once Parliament's ships began patrolling the Irish Sea, but many of those soldiers soon deserted or switched sides. The King's deal with the Irish was deeply unpopular. The Scottish intervention was the fruit of the Solemn League and Covenant. In return for promising to reform the Church of England, likely towards the Scottish Presbyterian model. The Covenanter government of the Marquis of Argyll sent an army of 22,000 men into England to fight the king for the English Parliament. But as we will see in this episode, Scotland was not entirely secure. Even as their main army campaigns in the north of England and another large army continue to fight in Ireland, the royalist cause will wreak havoc in the northern kingdom. That havoc will be so wrought by the newly minted Lieutenant Governor of Scotland, the Marquis of Montrose, James Graham. We left him last episode as he was commissioned by the King to return to Scotland 
and lead a royalist campaign against the Covenanter government. Lieutenant Governor the Marquis of Montrose left Oxford in early March, accompanied by several Scottish nobles who had rejected the Solemn League and Covenant. He gained some support from Newcastle in the form of a small army, but the Earl had his own problems. Montrose's former ally, the Earl of Leven, Alexander Leslie, was rampaging around the north of England with the formidable Covenanter army. Matters almost came to a head at the end of March, when Newcastle and Leven formed up for battle north of Sunderland, but neither side committed to a fight, and so after some skirmishing, everyone went their separate ways. It was a bit embarrassing for everyone involved. Montrose then met someone I wish we knew more about, Captain Frances Dalzell. She was the illegitimate daughter of the Earl of Carnworth, and she appears to have led men into battle, one of the few in this period. Her banner was apparently a naked figure, her family sigil, suspended in a gibbet on a black field with the motto, I Dare. She joined Montrose along with her father, the Earl of Carnworth, when the Marquis crossed the border at the end of March. Montrose was now on a warpath, and he began his campaign in the Middle Shires. Dumfries, in the southwest of Scotland, was occupied on the 15th of April. Here he was warmly welcomed by the city leaders, but he received none of the support he expected from royalist-leaning notables in the region. Worse than failing to support their king, some Scottish lords who had pledged their support to Charles instead raised forces to aid the Covenanters. After being warned that the Covenanters were sending a large force to crush him, Montrose retreated back into England, to Carlisle, all the while seething that allies had not flocked to support his cause like they'd promised. A mutiny among the English soldiers lent to him by Newcastle meant that the bulk of his small army refused to return to Scotland, leaving Montrose with an even smaller army. But he would do what he could. In the northeast of Scotland, things were slightly different. Once again, we find the Marquess of Huntley, George Gordon, the determined royalist, head of Clan Gordon, and a powerful landowner in the north of Scotland. Huntley and Montrose had been on opposite sides during the First Bishop's War. Montrose had fought Huntley's son, the Viscount of Boyne, at the Battle of the Brigadier, outside Aberdeen. When Montrose captured Aberdeen, Huntley had arrived at the city under Montrose's offer of safe conduct, in order to discuss terms. Only for Montrose, to be overruled by Alexander Leslie, now the Earl of Leven, who ordered Huntley arrested. Montrose was furious at this slight on his honour, and it was just one of the many reasons he found himself opposing his former comrades just a few years later. Montrose and Huntley had now made common cause, and Viscount Boyne was one of those men who had followed Montrose across the border. Huntley had spent the last year or so being relentlessly squeezed by the Covenanter government. For obvious reasons, he was not trusted. When the Convention of Estates met in the summer of 1643, they summoned him to Edinburgh to join in. With intervention in England looking likely, getting Huntley to the capital and away from his stronghold in the northeast would put a lot of minds at ease. However, Huntley refused on grounds which I have to say are pretty familiar to anyone in modern Scotland. Edinburgh was too expensive. He couldn't afford to stay there, and he was already struggling to pay off his debts. Instead, Huntley proposed what was essentially self-banishment. He would take a retinue of 50 men and travel to France. He could stay out of the Covenanter's hair 
while maintaining his principles. He was a committed royalist, and yet didn't want to make a stand for his king without support. But Huntley's request to quietly leave the kingdom was denied. He was declared to be in rebellion by the Covenanter government, and on the 1st of February, Charles appointed him his lieutenant in the north of Scotland. Huntley was not entirely innocent in all of this. He was in correspondence with royalists throughout the Three Kingdoms, and he was aware of plans for an uprising and invasion. But it does almost seem like Huntley was being forced into rebellion, against his better judgement, by both Charles and the Covenanters. On the 15th of March, Huntley issued a declaration, which stated his refusal to support an invasion of England with his taxes or his soldiers, and that he would defend himself against any violence from the state. Three days later, some Gordon men marched into Aberdeen and kidnapped four Covenanter burgesses. Whether Huntley gave the order himself, or if this was his followers trying to force his hand, is unclear. If it was the latter, poor Huntley is getting dragged kicking and screaming into a fight. The day after the raid on Aberdeen, he issued another declaration, calling those four burgesses seditious fermenters of dangerous distractions, and then he offered to release them. Again, was this Huntley justifying a show of strength against the closest Covenanter authority, or was he trying to put out the fire his followers had started against his wishes? Whichever was the case, three days after that, on the 24th of March, Huntley marched in force on Aberdeen and took it. The city was ransacked for supplies, and many of the ships in the harbour were seized for the king. Whatever his willingness or unwillingness, Huntley raised his banners for the king and called for allies to join him. But just as in the borders, these allies were few and far between. His initial force of around 1,200 men grew very little, and Huntley could only look south with worry. Well, he could have done more than that, and many of his followers urged him to take the initiative. Instead, Huntley sat in Aberdeen, as Argyll gathered a force and marched to confront him. On the 26th of April, Argyll brought around five to 6,000 men to the Earl Marshal's seat of Donota Castle, which I've mentioned before when discussing Scottish fortifications. It's an incredible structure, definitely worth a visit if you're in Aberdeenshire, and at the very least it's worth a Google. Anyway, my unpaid advertising for Visit Scotland out of the way, Huntley's time was up. Unable to face Argyll's huge force, he withdrew north from Aberdeen back to Huntley, his seat. And from there, he just kept running. He sailed across the Moray Firth, landed in Sutherland, and took refuge in Strathnether. This is almost as far north as you can get while staying on the mainland. There were dozens of locks, rivers, and miles of highland between there and Inverness, putting him well out of danger. It would take a committed effort by the Covenanter government to get to him, and they really had better things to do. Huntley will sit in Strathnether until October 1645. While Montrose will have his year of victories, Huntley will have a Sutherland sabbatical. Back down south, the Earl of Newcastle lent Montrose a small army, 2,000 infantry and 500 cavalry, and sent him to attack the Northumberland fortress of Morpeth. This was essentially a diversion. Once Morpeth was captured, either Leven would return north to secure his rear, or Montrose would continue his march north into Scotland. Either would be acceptable, both required Morpeth to be captured. 
Montrose's army arrived at Morpeth and quickly drove the defenders into the castle, while the surrounding town was secured. For the next 19 days, Montrose besieged the castle, which was garrisoned by Scots, and after the skilful placement and targeting of his artillery breached the walls, the castle was taken by storm. Montrose offered very generous terms to the garrison. They were allowed to go free, but only after they swore oaths never to take up arms against the king again. The ordinary soldiers were disarmed, and Montrose explained to the officers exactly how Argyll and Hamilton had led Scotland astray with their ambitions. Morpeth's fall forced Leven to send forces back to deal with it. Montrose captured another fortress in South Shields, but was then summoned to attend Prince Rupert. He met with the Prince of the Rhine and declared to him, Give me a thousand of your horse, and I will cut my way into the heart of Scotland. Rupert, who had just been badly mauled at the Battle of Marston Moor, more on that another time, said no. Worse, he took Montrose's army off him. He needed it, in his mind, more than Montrose did. The Lieutenant Governor and Captain General of Scotland had no army. Montrose took stock of his situation. It seemed to him that Covenanter control over the southern lowlands was too strong for local royalists to risk supporting him. Not only that, but as Dumfries and Morpeth had made clear, the main Covenanter army was too close for comfort. Any victories in the borders could be reversed if Leven ordered his army back. A reprieve for the English royalists, no doubt, but only a temporary one. Montrose would aim further afield. Despite Huntley's poor showing, the highlands and the northeast remained the most fertile royalist ground in Scotland. Neither Covenant had been warmly welcomed in these regions. If Montrose could reach those areas, somehow passing through the Covenant-controlled lowlands, things might look up. So with supreme self-confidence, in August 1644, Montrose crossed the border in disguise. He went with just two companions, and within a year, he would bring the Covenanter government to its lowest point yet. After four days of riding, Montrose arrived at Strathern. This was Graham country. Here, he received a letter from one Alistair McCullough, and he sent news which justified Montrose's bold and, some would say, reckless decision to enter Scotland pretty much alone. Alistair McCullough was a man straddling two worlds. He's also known as Alexander MacDonald, and both names, one Gallic, one Anglo-Scots, illustrates that neatly. McCullough was the son of a middling lord in the fracturing MacDonald kinship. His father had emerged from an internal succession dispute, fanned by their rivals the Campbells, with the small island domain of Collinsay in the Hebrides. Young McCullough would have spent time with his kinsmen in Ulster, building on the generations-long ties between the Gaelic Irish and the Gaels of the Highlands and Islands. Just as a reminder, the Macdonalds of the Isles were closely related to the Macdonalds of Antrim, to the point that I've seen the two names used interchangeably. To match the reputation which McCullough will earn in the 1640s, his early childhood was reimagined with endless omens of his strength and brutality. Here's a few, just for fun. When he was born, every sword in the house slipped from their scabbards and every gun broke. His own father considered drowning the babe, convinced his son would grow up to commit atrocities. As the boy grew, 
he ate toads, and he was so tall and strong that even as a youth he could tear the feet off of bulls and held them by their horns with one hand to decapitate them with the other in a single stroke. Oh, and the axe he used was meant for two hands, and he could hold it with one. He was a beast, a monster, or so the tales say. Another legend later in his life claims that when it was declared that the command of an army would go to the warrior with the strongest arm, he raised his sword in his right arm and declared, This is it. When asked for the warrior with the next strongest arm, he raised his left. When the political crises of the 1630s and 40s hit, his father and two of his brothers were imprisoned by the Earl of Argyll during the Bishop's Wars to retaliate against the Earl of Antrim's willingness to fight the Covenanters in return for Campbell land. Macaulla and another brother escaped to Ireland, and in a few years joined a regiment raised to fight the Irish rebels. But Macaulla was Catholic, and within a few weeks he resolved to defect. In an ambush on his supposed allies, Macaulay led a Catholic force to victory against their Protestant former comrades, who outnumbered them three to one. Macaulay then went on a rampage, capturing town after fortress throughout Antrim. Macaulay's victories dried up once the Covenanter force under Monroe arrived. He may have been as strong as ten men, or the spawn of Satan, but it outnumbered anything he could muster, and so he withdrew to Donegal. But when the Earl of Antrim recruited 1,600 men from among his tenants and the Macdonalds, McCullough was chosen to lead them. He was a loose cannon, a maverick, but he was the best damn Campbell killer on the force, or something like that. McCullough was only vaguely royalist. He was certainly a devout Catholic, and his army was described as crusaders by the papal nuncio in Ireland. But McCullough wanted to kill Campbells. Not only was he raised with a traditional hatred for the Campbells, but he had ample personal experience. His father and brothers remained captives of Argyle, and it was a Campbell regiment which occupied the Macdonald lands in Antrim. Macaulay sailed from Ireland on the 27th of June, 1644, and en route to Scotland, captured three ships, and then captured two castles in the Hebrides. When Macaulay landed on the mainland, a terrible explosion was heard. Now, whether this is yet another embellishment of Macaulay's life, or actually happened and was some kind of thunderclap, I'm not sure. But the Catholic priests in their party recorded it as an omen, a warning to the, quote, whelps of Calvin, that, quote, a cruel, savage, and foreign enemy had invaded the country. That was certainly how many of the royalists which McCollum met saw him. This was an Irish invasion, not a royalist intervention. And it was a small one at that. Even for those who understood this to be sanctioned by the king, promised allies turned out to be unwilling to muster forces and commit publicly to a cause with so little chance of success. Much the same story we've seen in the borders and in the northeast. Perhaps McCullough would have turned his force around, returned to Ireland, or sailed elsewhere in Scotland, or perhaps not, he rarely turned from a fight, and there were plenty of Campbell tenants to raid and harass. But then, the Covenanters captured his ships, and it wasn't his choice anymore. Now, there was no easy way home, and this would have consequences, as several Scottish writers would later record. Now committed, Macaulay sent out more summons to the Macleods, Macleans, McNeils, and Camerons. Nothing. Worse, some of those supposed allies were not just neutral, 
but antagonistic. McCullough roamed the western coast and the highlands, attacking and burning the territories of the Campbells, but finding few recruits and little support. As Edward Cowan puts it, apathy, the stranglehold of the Covenant, religion, several of the clans were Protestant, and suspicion of the Irish all contributed to Alistair's predicament. End quote. One of his followers recorded that he feared not death, for he resolved to die nobly, but it grieved him that he should have brought so many brave and hardy men out of their native country to be here, without hope of relief, swallowed up by the devouring sword of their enemies. End quote. And then, McCullough received a response to one of his letters. That in itself was a miracle, because he'd sent the letter to Montrose, at Carlisle. But Montrose wasn't at Carlisle. The letter went from Carlisle to Montrose's host at Strathern. Montrose replied, and then the message had to somehow find McCullough on his trek through the rugged terrain of Western Scotland, all the while avoiding interception by Covenant of forces. Montrose's response was an order, or perhaps request, for a muster of McCullough's troops at Athol, deep in the Highlands, along with any other forces he could find where Montrose would join him. And so, in August 1644, a small group approached the muster point, where McCullough was in a tense confrontation with local Stuarts and Robertsons, who distrusted his intentions and didn't want him leading hundreds of dangerous Catholic Irish through their territory. Cowan suggests that the two groups were on the brink of violence before the sudden arrival of these strangers distracted them. The party was led by a man in full Highland dress, complete with bonnet, short coat and trues. It was Montrose. He had arrived. At this gathering, where McCullough and the Athelmen had brought hundreds of men, Montrose had brought something more valuable. Leadership. Not that McCullough or the clans didn't have skilled leaders of their own, because they certainly did, but rivalries and distrust prevented any one of those leaders commanding and having the confidence of the other factions. Montrose offered unity. As chief of Clan Graham, he had ties to both Highland and Lowland, and his arrival in full Gallic dress only emphasised these ties and flattered their heritage. He was a Marquis, far outranking anyone else present. He was a Presbyterian who had signed the National Covenant, but he was no zealot, refusing the Solemn League and Covenant, and he was known for dealing fairly with Catholics. He was battle-tested, and his family had a reputation for martial success. Montrose himself was a skilled diplomat and politician, vital traits for someone trying to weld together a coalition like he found at Athol. And, above all, he carried a commission from the king. Immediately, the Athelman pledged 800 men to his service. McCullough brought his army under Montrose's command, glad to have a leader whose credibility as a Protestant royalist Scotsman was impeccable. And now Montrose had his army. A small army, of about 2,500 men, but it was a powerful corps of veterans who knew how to campaign in rough terrain, to live off few supplies, and they were strongly motivated. Now Montrose declared himself in Scotland. He raised the king's standard, quote, for the defence and maintenance of the true Protestant religion, his majesty's just and sacred authority, the fundamental laws and privileges of parliaments, the peace and freedom of the oppressed and thralled subject. End quote. Next time, we will follow Montrose as he leads a campaign which will, in the words of David Stevenson, 
temporarily collapse the Covenanter regime. Thank you to my House of Lords, including the King's favourite, Mike Sanders, the Duchess of Devon, Michelle Gersich, the Marquess of Coventry, Liam Hunter, and the Earl of Lincoln, Adam Foote. Remember that every patron, regardless of rank, receives an RSS feed which you can put in any podcast app to listen to the podcast ad-free. Thank you to everyone who's supported me on Patreon, left a review, or told a friend about the podcast. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music used in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. <laughs>